Luke records this. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of life. There was a book that came out some years ago entitled The 100 Most Influential People in the World. This fellow had been quite a scholar. He decided he could figure out who had been most significant, most important, so he put together his list, the top 100 list. Then he wrote a short essay about each one and why he placed them where he chose to place them on the list. When I saw the book and heard about it, I thought, oh, Jesus will be number one. Not so. I looked at the list. Number one was Muhammad. I was a little offended as a Christian. I'm like, are you kidding me? Can this be right? But you know what he wrote about? He said the followers of Muhammad follow much more closely the teachings than do the followers of Jesus. He said they're more serious, in a sense, about their discipleship. As I thought about that, I began to feel the weight of his argument. There's some room for improvement in our discipleship. There's some gaps in terms of how we follow. There are people all over our country who profess to be Christians and yet never come to church, never give a penny to the work of God, never serve anyone, never think about someone else, do not practice private devotions or public prayer. I mean, there's some room for improvement if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. And I began to think the fellow has a point. Our story today is about this room for improvement in terms of how we view our faith and how we respond to the teachings of Christ. 
Luke records that there was this lawyer. He would be a specialist in the law of Moses, a doctrinal expert who's wanting to test Jesus to see how keen he is on the law of Moses and what he's teaching all these people who have come to follow. So he asked him this question that Luke has here in verse 25. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the keys here is that the question is concerned with what must I do. It's not what do you believe or what should I believe or what do you think or what should I think or how do you feel about this. The question is an action question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's got a built-in action component to it. But as is sort of Jesus' way, he doesn't answer the question right off. He poses the question back. What is written in the law? What do you read there? The man answers, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Right you are. Do this and you shall live. The assumption here is that love is full of action, not a feeling alone. But then the lawyer, trying to justify himself, Luke records, says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, again, doesn't really answer the question, but launches into this parable and says, there's a man traveling on a dangerous stretch of road. And sure enough, it is dangerous. He runs into some bad actors. They fall upon him. They beat him up. They beat the living daylight. Luke says they even strip him of his clothing. They take everything and leave him laying in the ditch, bleeding almost dead and then as chance would have it a couple of upstanding citizens come by a priest and a levite and they pass by on the other side now many of us have heard this story a lot and we're ready to jeer when they pass by on the other side well let's be serious if you knew you were in a dangerous part of town where there had been beatings and shootings and killings and you saw someone laying there bloody would you jump out of your car and run over there to see what happened or would you pass on by? I mean, it could be just a decoy, right? I mean, you get out and come over there, and boom, they fall upon you and beat you half to death. Or maybe they're still there. Maybe they really beat the fellow, and you go to help, and then they beat you up. What if we knew the end of the story, and it said the next person who came by stopped, went to the man, and he was beaten half to death? We would say, that fellow was stupid. Well, you could see it was a dangerous situation. You wouldn't stop. Say he was using common sense. You know, get on the phone, call for help, don't stop. So it's so easy that we kind of look at these two and write them off as somehow callous or unfaithful or without care. I think that's a little too quickly moving into that role of judgment. The other thing about the priest and the Levite, there were rules about their role in the temple. And if they touched a corpse, then it made them unclean and they could no longer fulfill their duties. So that may have been another reason they moved on down the way. But we easily cast this story as somehow Jesus is comparing the callous priest and Levite against the sensitive Samaritan. 
but rather it is a comparison between those who act normally and the one who breaks through common sense and convention to do more. The first two were just acting normally. It's the third one that comes along who's ready to do more. And Jesus tells us that third one was a Samaritan. Now, to Jewish ears in that day, that would have been a dirty word. Whenever you see Samaritan, it's almost always derogatory when used by Jews of this period. See, the Samaritans and the Jews were cousins in some ways, but the Samaritans had some disagreement with the Jews. They thought the temple should be in a different place. They were willing to intermarry with other ethnic groups. The Jews were not. They disagreed on any number of things. So when Jesus says it's a Samaritan, and he's the one who sort of becomes the hero of the story, it would have been shocking to the audience. It is not only shocking who he is, a Samaritan, but what he does. I mean, he not only stops, he sees the man, he stops, he goes over and he tends to his wounds right there on the side of the road. Then he puts him on his own animal. He leads him to the nearest place of care then he takes care of him himself all night long. It says the next day, then he talked to the innkeeper, and he says, take care of this fellow as long as he needs care. And when I come back by, I'll pay for everything. Can you imagine finding a stranger on the side of the road, and you take him to the hospital and say, don't worry about the bill, just send it to me? I don't think most of us would do that. This fellow's doing more than what is expected. He's breaking with common sense and with conviction to do more. That's what Jesus is telling us. You remember that ad? It was on television many years ago. It would show an elderly person, a frail person in their home alone, and then they fall. And they're advertising a medical device where they could make a call. And then they have the person in distress say, do you remember it? It's the title of the sermon. I've fallen and I can't get up. And then they're saved by the operator. When our story today, the lawyer who's quizzing Jesus thinks he's the operator. He thinks he's the one who's going to ride in and save the day. But did you notice what Jesus does in verse 36? He turns this whole question around and the way he poses the question leaves the guy, the lawyer, in the ditch. Did you see that? Jesus is asked the question, who is my neighbor? But when Jesus poses the question, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Or in other words, was your neighbor? The fellow thinks he's the operator who's going to say, but he's the person who's fallen and can't get up. And Jesus has just said to him, this one you despise, this Samaritan, he's the one that you need. You are the one in need. You see, because the lawyer is trying to constrict this command about loving God with all of who you are and loving your neighbor, he wants to know now, who is my neighbor? What's the minimum here? And Jesus is blowing that wide open and says, well, who was your neighbor? Jesus' implication is that the lawyer needs a relationship with the one he thinks he's to help, with the one he's despising, the one he's already judged as unworthy. Jesus is saying, you need him. 
my Wesley study Bible that I use Sunday morning it has comments from John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. I want to read you the one that they included on this text because it talks about this very thing. This is what John Wesley wrote in his notes when he was reading this. Wesley says, Let us renounce that bigotry and party zeal which would contract our hearts into an insensibility for all the human race, but a small number whose sentiments and practices are so much our own that our love to them is but self-love reflected. With an honest openness of mind, let us always remember the kindred between man and man or the kinship between every person and cultivate that happy instinct whereby in the original constitution of our nature, God has strongly bound us to each other. Jesus turns this whole question around at the end of that parable when he asks his question. It is a shift from what are the limits to what are the possibilities. Do you see what he's doing here? It is a move from seeing life with God as something that constricts our life to seeing life with God as an experience that expands our life and our living. It moves from limits to possibilities. It moves from fear to faith. It moves from scarcity to abundance. It is a move from the physical as the focus of all things to the spiritual. It is a move from self-focus to God-focus. It is a move from being bound by sin and separation to being freed by God's amazing and unending grace. In terms of our stewardship and commitment campaign, it has moved from how much of my money do I have to give to how much of God's money do I keep. It has moved from I have to give to I get to give. Or even better, it has moved from what do I need to give to what does God want to give through me. It has moved from self-protection to God provision in terms of our giving. It's a move which Jesus makes in this story to try to open the eyes and the heart of the lawyer who's asking the question. It happens for us in different ways at different times in our lives that we have these experiences that begin to open us up. We begin to see more clearly what God is calling us to do. As United Methodists, we call it growing in grace. We suggest that God is at work in our life through His grace, pouring out His blessing upon us throughout our lives and shaping us ever more into the image and likeness of Christ. Let me tell you a little about how this has happened in my life, particularly how this has happened around finances and giving and generosity. I was born and raised just south of here in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, the first United Methodist Church. We were a family that if the church was open, we were there. We were there every Sunday morning, Sunday school and worship. We were going to be there. If there was something going on weeknights, we were there. If there was Bible school and you were a child in our family, you were there. When came age for youth group, Sunday nights, that's where you were going to be. 
And I remember my parents talking about tithing. I sort of remember we had these campaigns. I even remember a little something about coins and containers and how we were supposed to divide things up. But it never really stuck. I mean, it wasn't embedded in me. I went away to college and then never gave a dime to anybody for anything. Then I was called into ministry. Not sure how that happened, but anyway, called into ministry Went to Kansas City, Missouri to our St. Paul School of Theology. I learned a lot of things. But you know what? I don't remember any professor talking about tithing as a spiritual practice. About the importance of growing in our generosity as part of our growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Oh, we talk some about finance and administration, but I don't recall anything about giving and generosity and tithing being foundational in our life together as a local church and then i came out of a seminary and my first two appointments were as associate pastor so somebody else was the one who had to talk about money and giving and generosity so i just sort of flew under the radar I mean, I felt like, you know, I'm giving my whole life to the church. I've given myself to God. I'm down there all the time. I'm working like crazy. And, you know, they're not paying me enough. <laughs> Have you ever known an employee who thought they don't get paid enough? About every one of us. I was in that boat. So I gave 1%. And then about this time of year, one of those senior pastors would talk about this. And so Mary and I would struggle thinking we've given what we could, we're a little bit short, we're a little overcommitted, so we'll give a little bit and hope nobody asks us what we're doing. I mean, we sort of dodged the bullet. I had to be converted to this whole thing through sermons and Sunday school lessons and my own reading, that this was really important, that this was really a part of discipleship, we thought then we were doing all right. I mean, we had a pretty good rationalization. I was there all the time. My wife was there with me. She wasn't even being paid, for God's sake. <laughs> Maybe that's the tithe. You know, we're given a lot of time. That's not really what the Bible says, but that was sort of the rationalization. You know what I think now? I think we were robbing God, and we were robbing ourselves of the blessing that God makes available to us through giving and generosity. And then in the year 2000, I got a call from my supervisor, the district superintendent, and he said, David, we need to move you. And they were sending me to another church. I couldn't believe it. But he told me all these wonderful things about the church, and it was a wonderful, fantastic church. But one little item he left off was... They were in a financial nightmare. I got there in October, and if you're Methodist, you know we have these things called apportionments, this commitment we make a year ahead of time. We're supposed to pay 100% by the end of December. I arrived in October, and we had paid 28%. And the more I talked to them, I realized this had become a pattern, sort of a crisis at the end of the year and then sort of the preacher and some of the lay people who were leaders kind of begging everybody, trying to whip them up to go ahead and give enough. And some years they made it and some years they did not. And I realized they needed a different kind of leader. And I needed to be a different kind of giver. And Mary and I talked about it. Oh, we had worked our way from 1% to 2 to 3. We were up to about 6. We were feeling pretty good about it. 
But we said, this is the time. We've got to do this. We've got to step up. God has called me to this place, and if I'm going to help these folks, I've got to step up. And we stepped up to 10%. And you know what? We never missed a meal. Our kids still had shoes to go to school. We still both had cars. We lived in a beautiful home. You know what we found? It was a blessing upon blessing. Mary and I were talking about it this week. There was a spirit of generosity that began to blossom within our hearts and within our life and within our marriage that's been one of the greatest things that ever happened to us. God used a need someone else had to meet the need we had. It was time for us to become better givers. It was time for us to cultivate generosity. It was time for us to step up follow the biblical recipe about what God challenges us to do with our resources, with our finances. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said there are three conversions that need to happen in a person's life. There's a conversion of the head, there's a conversion of the heart, and there's a conversion of the pocketbook. That pretty well summed it up for us. We had a couple. We needed to take the third step. We had to be converted. You may be there too. You know, we finally had to decide, are we going to trust God? I mean, are we really going to trust God even in the arena of stewardship and our finances? Do we believe that God's revealed to us the best way to life? And if so... If there is a biblical recipe for financial health and blessing, are we willing to give it a try? It's a decision and a conversion that all of us have to go through at some point in our lives. So we're in the midst of a commitment campaign. I don't call it a pledge drive or a stewardship campaign. Those are all right, but I'm calling it a commitment campaign because finally you have to decide what am I committed to? Who am I committed to? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust God in this matter of my wealth, of my finances, of my future and the things I want and the stuff I feel like I need? Can God, will God provide for that? We have to make a decision if we believe that and make a commitment to see what happens. So we are having a commitment campaign and next Sunday... We have an opportunity to respond. Now, I've asked you to make this a matter of prayer and discernment. I gave you a prayer last week to go through, Lord, what do you want to do through me to fulfill your will for Boston Avenue Church? And then I've sent you a letter, and inside there, there's a five-step discernment process to help you think through what has God given you, how is God blessing you, what is God calling you to do in response i i really hope you'll take time to read through that to kind of pray through that to fill in the blanks before you come back next sunday if you haven't gotten a letter call us we will get you one and this is important next sunday will be our time for action it'll be our opportunity at the end of the service when we stand to sing the hymn to not only stand in our places but to come forward to bring the card Drop it in a box right here at the altar. 
It's a symbolic way to say, God, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is what I'm willing to do. This is how much I trust you. This is what I'm committed to. This is what I believe. This is what I'm going to do with your help. I find it one of the most profound moments of the whole church year when hundreds of us have prayed and then come forward to make a commitment. I find it a high and joyous and moving moment to have hundreds of us responding to God's call in our life. I hope you'll be here. I think you'll experience something profound if you spend this week praying about this and then get your card ready and come next Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to say we commit to this love command. It's time for us to say, Lord, I love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength all my mind and I want to love my neighbor as myself Jesus says do this and you shall live it's a statement of blessing it's an opportunity to grow into an ever more faithful disciple of Jesus Christ Amen thanks be to God